Amen. Well, this morning, a little bit later, we get to celebrate communion together. But before we do that, I want to talk about communion. There's been a lot of confusion and a lot of bad teaching about communion throughout church history. So I want us to focus our minds on God's Word, in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you have a Bible. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 135 in the second half. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world's. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. I want us to see three points here. Number one, messing up the mill. And then number two, the meaning of the mill. And number three, the warning of the mill. So first, messing up the mill. We see this in verses 17 to 22. And Paul has nothing to commend them for. In the following instructions, a rebuke is coming. And this passage is all about the local church. It concerns their gathering. It says, when you come together as a church, the New Testament is very local church centric. The vast majority of times you see that word church, it's talking about a local church. And here you see them coming together. And the main point of when our coming together, our corporate worship is the worship of God. That is the main reason we come together. Sometimes we get confused about this. Sometimes other churches have got confused about this, right? Just think of maybe, maybe you're familiar with the seeker-sensitive movement. 
It's a movement that wants to make everything palatable for a seeker. That's a good motive, I think. But it loses sight of the fact that worship is first and foremost not about guests, not about visitors. We want guests and we want visitors and we want to make sense. But first and foremost, our gathering is about the worship of God. That's why we gather. Or just think about the so-called worship wars. I think it's been a good 15, 16, 17 years since Southside has any such thing. But when you have wars about preferences, about what type of musical style, we've lost sight of what our gathering is about. When we have bickering about the color of the carpet, we've lost sight of what the corporate worship is about. It is about the exaltation of God, not about our personal preferences. May the members of Southside never come away from a Sunday gathering saying, I didn't get anything out of that. Because it's not about you, friends. We're here to worship him. The corporate gathering is about the worship of God. And so we ought to take it seriously, right? It means we ought to prioritize this gathering. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? It means we ought to plan around this gathering. It means we ought to pray towards this gathering, planning ahead. A good corporate worship time really starts the night before, right? Especially for you parents. A good corporate worship experience begins Saturday nights. And as we get back into a book of the Bible, I want to encourage you to be reading ahead. We're going to be in Luke 1 and 2 for the next four weeks. I encourage you to be reading Luke 1 and 2. Reading ahead, coming ready to worship God as we gather. That's the main reason. The second reason, though, that we gather is for our own edification, for our own encouragement, for our own upbuilding. And the church at Corinth had forgotten this. If you've got your finger in chapter 11, look over at chapter 14, verse 12. There at the end he says, strive to excel in building up the church. It's the second reason we come together is to build one another up. Or there in verse 26 of chapter 14, there at the end he says, let all things be done for building up. And so we worship God and we build one another up. I wonder how this would change our posture towards this meeting. If we came not just to receive, but to actually give, coming with prayerful intentionality, to be an encouragement to someone else spiritually. Just think of how our time together would be transformed if we all came with prayerful intentionality, thinking, how can I encourage someone's faith this morning? So we gather to honor God, we gather to encourage one another, and that was not happening in Corinth. And Paul explains what's wrong back in chapter 11. Look at verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When they gather, there are divisions. There are, the word is schisma. There are schisms in the church. He first used this word back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that there be no schisms among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What should have built fellowship is actually causing the opposite here in Corinth. And division in the church is to be taken very seriously. And sadly, we've got a bad track record in America, especially as Baptists. We've got a bad track record. We multiply not for the sake of mission. We multiply because of division. Too often, we are notorious for church splits, but God calls the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain unity. 
And the basis of our unity is the truth. We are unified around truth, which, by the way, is one of the reasons we do church membership. As you commit to this body, we want you to know what we believe and what we will teach. We want you to know what you're getting into before you commit to joining. That's why we have a class and why we have a meeting. We, want, we really care about unity. The motive is unity. We want you to know who we are and what's expected of a member. Taking division very seriously. And know these divisions are to be fought against. Notice there is a divine purpose for these divisions. Did you see that in verse 19? He says, for there must be factions among you. And here's the purpose. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This word here for factions in the ESV is, is hieresis. Maybe sounds familiar. Heresy. There must be divisions, God says through the Spirit. There must be schisms. There must be factions. There must be heresy. He says, in order to show who are genuine among you. To show who those are who are actually the children of God. Goats will get in with the sheep. Wolves will sneak in in sheep's clothing. And the God-given purpose is to show who are genuine children of God. Jesus spoke of this in his parable of the wheat and the weeds, different kinds of soils. They must be to show who is genuine. They must be to show who is approved. They serve to separate the true from the false. I wonder if you think about church division in this way. Necessary to show who's true and who's false. Here's how 1 John chapter 2 puts it very helpfully. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. If they would have truly been, they would have continued not only with the church, but with the true teaching of the church. That's what 1 John is all about. So these divisions are necessary. And the core of the cause of these divisions in Corinth was self-centeredness. No surprise there. It always is, isn't it? Nothing's changed. Look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Of course, remember here in this time, the church didn't have a big building like this. They met in homes. They met in homes usually on Sunday, which was not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday, but Sunday was the Lord's Day based on the resurrection. They would meet in homes usually in the evenings because it was a work day. And so you would have those who were well-to-do. Maybe they owned their own business or they had more freedom in their schedule. They would get off earlier and they would go to the home where the church would be gathering later that evening and they would eat all the food and get drunk on the wine. They were turning church into happy hour. Then you had the poor folks who were less free with their schedule who would come and show up and they would arrive and there would be nothing left. And doing this, these well-to-do members, they despise the church and they humiliate the poor. It was more like a secular Corinthian dinner party than it was corporate worship, giving preference 
to the well-to-do over the marginalized. And, of course, Jesus had much to say about that. In other words, the problem was many in this church thought that church was about their own needs. They were only looking out for themselves. They didn't realize that church is about using what you have to give to those who need to serve others. And the Lord's Supper in particular was to be an expression of the unity of the community of the new covenant. And here they are destroying the meaning of the meal and humiliating the poor. They're messing up the meal here. Paul has no commendation. The second then, he gives us a reiteration of the meaning of the meal in verses 23 to 27. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a rich section cited in churches all over the world. I want us to notice seven aspects of communion from this little section. First, notice that this practice is from Jesus himself. Notice what he says there in verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This comes from Jesus. It goes all the way back to him. He's the boss. We read about it in Luke 22 and Matthew 26. And what's fascinating is at the time Paul's writing this letter to the first, first letter to the Corinthians, there was no written gospel yet. There was no Luke 22 and Matthew 26 yet. But the oral tradition was founded on this story of the death and resurrection of Jesus as the center. And so it comes from the Lord. The second thing I want you to see is the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus. Look at verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Again, in church history, there's been a lot of debate about these verses. Roman Catholics teach it, teach transubstantiation based upon these verses, the idea that the body, the bread and the blood of Jesus actually becomes the body and blood. The bread and juice becomes the body and blood. And so the priest is there and he says in Latin, this is my body, which in Latin reads like this, hoc est corpus meum. And ta-da, the elements are transfixed. It's like magic, literally. In fact, this is where we get our phrase hocus pocus from. Hoc est corpus meum. Jesus is sacrificed afresh every mass. And then Lutherans, of course, use it to teach what's called consubstantiation. So it's not that the bread actually becomes the body or the juice actually becomes the blood, but Jesus is present in them or with them or under them, in, with, and under. When you try to figure out what exactly that means, I couldn't even tell you. But Jesus is literally present there, in, with, and under the elements. And y'all know I love Luther, but I'm not with Luther on this one. In fact, Luther butted heads with Ulrich Zwingli, who would really become the, the fountainhead of Presbyterianism, the fountainhead of the Reformed tradition. And they came together. They're both Protestants, had so much in common, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ and justification by faith alone. But Luther was hot-headed, and they could not come to agreement. And he, Luther just with, his, with a knife carves in the table, this is my body. And Zwingli's like, Jesus also said, I am the door. Does that mean that door is Jesus? It's symbolic, and they could not get together. 
And so we as Baptists, obviously, we side with Zwingli on this one. But both were a little bit off. The, the word here, this, this is my body, is neuter in gender. The word bread, which is the antecedent, is masculine. So the this here is not even referring to the bread. The this is referring to the whole deal. It's representative of what's happening. The whole action. And Jesus wasn't saying the bread literally becomes his body. Paul's actually making the opposite point here. All that debate is about the real presence of Jesus. Paul's point here for us in quoting Jesus is that it's about the absence of Jesus. It's what we are left to do since he's not here, right? Look at verse 26 there at the end. We do this until he comes. In other words, communion is not about the presence of the Lord, but his absence. And what we do to remember him symbolically, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ. It does not become the body of Christ. Notice third, this is for you. Read it again there, verse 24. He'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. His body was given for us. There may not be more beautiful words in all of Scripture. For us, in our place, bearing the penalty we deserved. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died as our substitute, substitutionary atonement for us in our place. He bore the sin of many as we read in Isaiah chapter 53. So it's for you. The fourth thing to learn here is that it represents the shed blood of Christ. Notice he doesn't say this, this cup is the blood. He doesn't say that. Jesus shed blood. He's the final sacrifice. He died once for all, as Hebrews tells us. He died so we don't have to die as we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The fifth thing is what he says, actually, is this cup is the new covenant in his blood. There in verse 25. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus brings about the promised new covenant through his death. I hope that means something to you. The new covenant is the culmination of all the previous covenants. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And so in his death, he brings about what everything was looking forward to. 
finds fulfillment, finds culmination in him. Jesus is the heir of the promises. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the singular offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. Jesus is the offspring of David, the king who will rule for eternity. He put an end to the sacrificial system. He brings full and final forgiveness of sins. And he sends down the promised spirit to transform us. He brings about the new covenant. Communion is the meal of the new covenant. Then the sixth thing to notice is that we celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. He says it twice. It's there at the end of verse 24. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it's in the end of verse 25. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We need to remember. This is why the Lord has given us this ordinance. It's a present continuous. Do this and keep on doing it. And the reason is because we're such a forgetful people. And the people of God always have been. In the Old Testament, again and again and again, God calls his people to remember what I've done for you. Remember, gain perspective, persevere, don't lose heart. Remember who I am and remember what I've done for you, especially the Exodus. He freed the people of God. Exodus 13, verse 3. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember, don't forget. Fourteen times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, God commands his people to remember. It's because we're such a forgetful people, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are drawn away, aren't we? Every week we're drawn away. The waves of the world just move us ever so subtly and slowly but surely to a place where we don't need to be. And we forget. On the one hand, we become self-sufficient. We do okay and we become independent. We think we're good without the grace of God. On the other hand, more realistic moments, we despair. And we're plagued by shame and guilt and feelings of inadequacy. Either way, we're focused on ourselves. Self-salvation is our default mode. And we end up placing our identity and our value in the things of this world. And so we need to remember, and communion is part of it, we remember to stake everything on Christ, find everything in him. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And so the practice of regular communion reorients us. It reminds us that we are sinners. We deserve condemnation, but Christ died for sinners. And through him, we have a right standing. We have justification. So communion keeps the cross before us. Cross makes no sense without sin. Cross makes no sense without the judgment of God. But in that, we see the cross as our salvation. And we can declare with Paul that no, nothing except Christ and him crucified. We can declare with Paul, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so remembering Christ's finished work keeps us encouraged in the hard times. It keeps our identity as the people of God. It helps us pass these truths on to the next generation. Keeps the main thing the main thing and is really the only true source of joy and assurance and humility and then proper boldness. So we remember him. And then seventh, we see that in communion, we see the gospel displayed. Look at verse 26. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is our drama ministry. It's an acted sermon, an enacted parable. We preach Christ crucified through communion. We proclaim it as our life, our sufficiency, our identity, our only hope, and we will do this until he returns. God's given the church this ordinance to practice until the eschaton. So that's the meaning of the meal, and now let's turn to third, the warning of the meal. See the warning of the meal in verses 27 to 32. Verse 27, whoever therefore, based upon what this meal is about, therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there's a warning here. Don't come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Oftentimes we'll take this to mean that communion is this time that needs to be very, very sad, a time to mess up your face and feel sorry for Jesus. As if it's in remorse of Jesus instead of in remembrance of Jesus. What one Baptist pastor called a, a Protestant form of medieval self-flagellation. But that's not what this verse is about. Eating the meal in an unworthy manner primarily means eating it in a way that provokes division among the people of God. Right? Look again at verse 18. This is the context. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And in our age of just rugged individualism, we got to remind ourselves just how corporate the Christian faith is. The vertical is always tied to the horizontal. In fact, flip over just a couple pages, chapter 8, verse 12, 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says here. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters horizontally and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against Christ. We in America have got to realize just how tied the vertical is towards the horizontal. Again, specifically thinking of fellow believers. First John 4 is probably the clearest in this regard. Anyone says, I love God whom he hasn't seen, yet does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God. He says, this commandment is from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, this is why church membership is so important. There are 51 another's in the New Testament, and it's going to be very hard to practice most of them if you're not part of a local body with specific names and specific addresses and specific gifts to bring and specific burdens to bear. Because love for God is demonstrated and proven and shown through love for one another. Struck recently by a Sermon on the Mount, once again, let me read to you Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. It says, if you're offering your gift at the altar. So here we are, we're talking about worship, coming to church. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Just keep on worshiping, put it out of your mind, he'll take care of it himself. 
No. Leave your gifts there before the altar and go. Forget corporate worship when you have sinned against a brother or a brother has something against you. Leave your gift. According to this verse, the horizontal is even more important than the vertical. Leave your gift there and go. Be First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What a word for us this morning. Eating the meal in an unworthy manner is when there is reconciliation that needs to happen among the body and it hasn't happened. So how should we approach then communion? With sobriety and with self-examination. Look again at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. An unexamined life is not worth living, but we don't like this. We don't like to examine ourselves. It makes us uncomfortable. But it's a command in Scripture right here, and actually it's in other places. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I wonder when the last time you've obeyed that commandment. To examine yourself to see whether or not you're truly a believer. As we know, it's a whole lot more than just saying some things. The demons do that quite well. Test yourselves and do it regularly. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there unrepentant sin in your life? We will all battle sin until the day we die. Here's the key. Are you battling it? Are you confessing it and turning from it? Examine yourself. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Be diligent. Work hard to confirm. Have you truly been called by the Lord? Are you truly elect? Examine yourself. Again, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but if there is ongoing, willing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your lives, you need to examine yourself, especially in Abilene, Texas, where everybody is a Christian. It's a hard call. It could be the most important call of your life. I thought I was a Christian from all the way until freshman in college. I needed someone to come to me and say, Blake, there's no fruit in your life. In fact, the fruit you're showing is the opposite of what someone who claims the name of Christ is. I needed to examine myself. Could have saved a lot of heartache. And so this is the call, brothers and sisters. Let's examine ourselves and turn from sin and reconcile with one another. Lest we face the chastening of God. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. If you're weak and ill, it doesn't always mean sin in your life, but sometimes it does. Again, lots of confusion historically on these verses. Discerning the body has nothing to do with perceiving the real presence of Jesus in the elements. It means recognizing the community of believers for what it is, the one body of Christ. Again, unity is so important. In fact, flip over to chapter 10, verse 16. We see this idea with communion. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Maybe your translation says fellowship. 
in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In the Lord's Supper, we fellowship together in unity with the basis being the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of our unity. Now, we don't do one loaf here. It'd have to be a big loaf, but we do miss something of this unity in our modern practice. Many crumbs and many cups may be more sanitary and convenient, but we miss the significant symbolism of the unity of this meal and the unity of the church. So if we come together to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed, unrepentant sin, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves, which can look like weakness or illness or even death. I wonder if you take this practice with sufficient sobriety and seriousness. This is the Lord's corrective discipline. He cares deeply about the purity of his church and he will preserve it. So the call is to examine yourself. We see God do this sort of thing all over the Old Testament. In fact, we see it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, maybe you remember Ananias and Sapphira went and sold some property, lied, lied about giving all of it to the offering for the church. Remember what happened? They both die. The Lord preserving the purity of his church. I can just imagine. We don't pass the plate here at Southside. We have boxes, but I can just imagine passing the plate and brother and sister next to you croak over after giving a little bit of money. Be throwing in checkbooks and credit cards, like whatever you got to do to be covered. This is serious. That's why when we have communion, I'll often say something like this If you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're invited to participate. This is what pastors have historically called fencing the table, guarding the purity of the church by guarding who takes communion. The phrase goes way back probably to Scottish Calvinism where they would literally put a, put a fence around the communion table and it would have a gate. And so there would be elders there guarding the gates. And you couldn't have communion unless you were in good standing. And that meant different things to different people. But basically it was that you were walking with the Lord. And there was these little specially minted tokens that you would have to give in order to get the bread and the cup. Now, that's a little bit extreme. Although part of that was that to take communion, you had to pass a catechism test. I like that part. I like that part. Thinking about re-bringing re that back. But. A little bit extreme, but we do guard it by inviting those who are baptized believers in good standing with the local church. All the various traditions of Christianity historically have taught that baptism should precede communion. Because baptism is the public profession of faith. Baptism is what makes one recognizable as a believer. This is what our confession, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 states, which means all Southern Baptists practice it this way, or at least they're supposed to on paper. And by good standing, what we mean is that you're in good standing either with this church or another church. If you've been disciplined or removed or have some, some unreconciled relationships, that's not good standing. That needs to be made right first. Then come to the table. And again, this is for your own good. This is so that you won't be judged. This is also for the purity of the church. Look at verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we took care of our own business, we wouldn't have to worry about it. If we turned from sin, we have no reason to worry about the Lord's chastening hand here. It's the same idea as in verse 28. Let a person examine himself. Stop worrying about judging others. Begin by judging ourselves. Again, is there ongoing 
unrepentant, unconfessed sin in our lives? Is there a battle? In other words, we all sin. Here's the question, though. Do you hate your sin? Or are you willingly pursuing your sin? The call is to turn from it. So how then should we approach the table? Notice what he says in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Of course, this doesn't fit our context. We're not in a home and we're not participating in a full meal. But the idea here is to act in love. No more going ahead with your own interests. I hope you know Philippians 2. If not, it's a wonderful chapter to be familiar with. There we learn this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, putting others first. That's what we do in the church. In other words, love one another. This is really what we're talking about. Love is the giving of self for the good of another. Looking out, not for number one, but for number one. I love the way he describes it, even in this context. You probably don't have to turn. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good. It's the same thing Philippians 2 says. But the good of his neighbor. This is what Christian love is. We come here and we operate not with our own good in mind, but with the good of another. Notice what he says. Skip down to verse 32 of chapter 10. Give no offense to Jews, unbelieving Jews, or to unbelieving Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Again, this is what a Christian does. We don't look out for ourselves. We look out for others. You know why? That's the Christian thing to do. In fact, we have an unfortunate chapter break here in chapter 11. Look at 11 verse 1. He says, be imitators of me in this way. As I am of Christ, this is what we do. This is what the call is. This is love, not consumed with our own agenda, but meeting the needs of others. We put the interests of others first in the church. I'm sure it's not original with Alicia, but she has J-O-I, several places in our home, joy to teach the kids, Jesus, others, then you. And that's the biblical order. I love 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, that's us so far, should no longer live for ourselves. According to this verse, one of the reasons of the death of Jesus is that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. We live for Jesus and then for his body, then for the neighbors, then for the world, and then for the enemy, and then us. Most of us have that totally flips. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and then us. And so may God give us grace to be the people he's called us to be, the spirit-filled community of the new covenant called to live in unity on the basis of the shed blood of Christ.